Research Pages, a podcast all about supporting academic research. I'm Neve Page, a librarian at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Andrew Page, a computer scientist from the Quadrum Institute. We are both information professionals supporting research, but coming from very different angles. We hope you enjoy listening. So this week we want to talk about reproducibility something that's often referred to as being a crisis at the moment in research, something that research support librarians are involved with in terms of trying to encourage people to have data management plans and that sort of thing. I'm really interested in hearing from your perspective um, about reproducibility in bioinformatics, how big a problem it is, uh, why is it something people should care about and what can we do about it? Well, you mentioned data management plans there, and I'm in the middle of writing a few. And I can honestly say that for most academics, they probably promise quite a lot, but they probably don't deliver what they say they're going to deliver. In bioinformatics, it's a big problem because often you get papers and you try and reproduce results. Maybe you have a paper with some data and some methods and you want to add in your own data. Mm-hmm. And then you find that either the software isn't available or... Maybe they've updated the software, but they didn't keep the old versions. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the data is only available as this polished uh, post-processed thing Mm -hmm. rather than the original raw data. And you can't actually do very much with that. So unfortunately, a lot of research that's out there in science just isn't reproducible. You can't use it again. But why would you want to reproduce the same result another time? What's the point? Well, for example, maybe I've written a software method Mm -hmm. and I want to compare my method to a previously published one. Well, what do you do? Well, you get their software and you run it on a standard benchmark data set or maybe you want to run on your data to see how well it performs. And if you can't do that, then how can you reproduce their work? Often, unfortunately, there can be variation between experiments Um, Sometimes people maybe will leave out the stuff that didn't work Mm -hmm. and only keeping the stuff that did work. And that can give false impressions of really how well this stuff works. And that's encouraged, by the way, the scholarly publishing works at the moment. Lots of journals don't even publish negative results or anything that's not really impressive and new or exciting to leave out. Yeah, exactly. Pop science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you think of a humble Big Mac... If you go in any McDonald's in the world, you'll get the same burger. It'll taste the same. It'll have the same lettuce that's cut to the same width. The burgers will be the same um, same depth, cooked to the same way. You know, everything is the same. But yet, if you consider Big Mac, in each country, all the ingredients are made by different suppliers. They're, most of the stuff is locally sourced and then it's cooked by different people with in different languages all around the world with different temperatures outside but somehow it comes out the same every single time and that reproducibility is actually really 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 difficult but that's kind of what we need for science we need that rigor so how do you think we would achieve that how would you get that rigor oh well that's where i come in that's where the support side of uh, science comes in And in bioinformatics, that involves things like making sure your compute infrastructure is flexible and you can actually rerun something, say, in five years' time, or making sure that you actually record the metadata that goes in an experiment to give it the context that it needs, 
or even storing the raw data and making it available in public archives. These are all really important things. And it's very important in bioinformatics because the cost of sequencing has plummeted over the past few years. So if you look at when they made the human genome in 2001, that would have cost, what, $100 million per human genome at that point. And now, you know, fast forward just a few years, tw nearly 20 years, and it's about $1,000. Actually, it's less than about $1,000 per human genome, which is crazy. You know, just the amount of reduction is just insane. Now, there is a big problem with that, and that is when it, things get cheaper, the scientists go, oh, okay, we're going to do more. And so then the volume of data goes up and the number of samples goes up. And you might be able to track and remember things about one sample. But if you have 50,000 samples in, in a project or in a paper, that becomes a lot more difficult. And that's where you need to bring in much more rigor and you need to bring in systems to track and allow you to actually reproduce uh, your results. What kinds of systems are you using to do this? So essentially the inputs are... We have some sequencing data, so that is reads, you know, A, C, G, and T. And we have some metadata, and that might be, say, this bacteria was collected from nuts in America and or from this factory, and this is the bacteria that grew, you know, this is the strain, you know, all this kind of metadata that's really, really important, and that has to be tracked because that gives context sounds like you need to hire some librarians we're all about metadata oh yeah i love <laughs> metadata and but it's more important than that you need a controlled vocabulary then for that metadata as well so that you can place context on things because if you take something very simple like the date in america they're really different to europe and that can cause a lot of confusion or simply country names okay mm -hmm. what do you call a country well somewhere like the usa you know is it USA, United States of America, you know, mm. what you write down, even the United Kingdom. Some people write GB, Great Britain. However, as we both know, that's not the official name of the country. So it sounds like there's a controlled vocabulary piece and then there's also standards because the bit you were saying earlier on was more about having standardised approaches for the naming convention of dates, for example. Yeah, so it's standardised conventions and agreeing what the, those conventions are. Mm -hmm. For everything. And that's hard. Yeah. And unfortunately, people sometimes don't realize how in-depth you have to get with a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Luckily, there is something from my area, and it's called GMI, the Global Microbial Identifier, where there are many, many committees and many conferences where uh, people have gone away and taught about this and uh, tried to put some structure on it. And it's really important in our domain because it's for infectious diseases and it's for sharing information about that. And that crosses uh, borders, you know, like mm -hmm. if you have an outbreak of a, a bacteria causing disease, it doesn't matter that it's in Ireland or UK, you know, it could easily just as well be over half of Europe. And you need to break down those borders and share information freely in a standardized manner if mm -hmm. you want to actually, you know, help people. So one of the things I find fascinating is when you end up with different standards being developed by different people, at which point it's not exactly a standard, is it? Does that happen with you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you take antibiotic resistance, right, there are loads and loads and loads of different ways of just writing what an antibiotic is, shorthand for the antibiotic, and then what people define as being resistant to an antibiotic and what is not. They set different levels in different countries in different ways and they have different combinations of standard panels. And it's like just standard hell. <laughs> and yeah, 
you know, that happens everywhere. Mm. But in bioinformatics, you know, at least it's a new area, so we can hopefully come to some kind of consensus, <laughs> which just means we've lots of competing standards. But anyway, we, we get in sequencing reads and some metadata. Then we need to do, well, we need to store all of that somewhere. And we need to do some kind of processing of that data, munging of the data. And then, munging. you know, take it in and move it around and uh, extract some useful information. A little secret is that uh, a lot of bioinformatics is just converting from one file format to another file format. That's probably about 90% of the work that I do or a mm-hmm. bioinformatician does, but don't tell anyone that. And then both of those file formats will end up obsolete at some point. But both? You mean all 30 <laughs> or 40? Yeah. Yeah, So, but it goes much deeper than that because you have to think about, well, if you write a little bit of a script to process the data in some way and pull out some results, well, you have to sort a script somewhere or you have to run it on something and in, in my area it'd be say on a virtual machine or a container in a cloud or on a cluster and you know you have to have those available because software as well and computers change quite a bit quite mm-hmm. regularly and you might have one li- little change somewhere and that can have a huge impact mm-hmm. and you don't be accused of academic fraud. So one of the challenges that's come up with some of our academics is the sheer volume of data that is generated in certain fields. I, I, I remember one conversation with a PhD student who was saying, but I'm generating a terabyte a day and I can't afford to store all that data. And, you know, EPSRC are saying they want me to store the data, but how much? How do I decide? And, you know, the answer is that EPSRC has said they trust the academics to work out what's required to make their research reproducible. But yeah. it's really tough for somebody that's new into research to navigate. Obviously, they'll have their supervisor's guidance, but it's it's a can of worms, isn't it? It's hard. I mean, some of the machines in bioinformatics, right? We no longer store the actual raw data that comes off it. Those are basically images or from a lot of machines images or raw signals Mm -hmm. we instead store the base call data or the data where you've done some processing because it's a lot smaller and then you go on from there that's your starting point and you store those files we call that the raw sequence data Mm -hmm. and that goes into the archives into public archives or somewhere but actually you need a lot more storage in between you know to actually do something with the data a kind of rule of thumb is that if a person is sitting there bashing a keyboard, you know, doing some analysis, for every one base of sequencing, so A, C, G, and T, you need 10 bytes of space on a hard disk somewhere for intermediate files and maybe copies of files, that kind of thing. However, if you have some kind of automated way of doing it, without doing too much, you can get that down to five bytes per base. Mm -hmm. And actually, I know people have pushed it even further where, you know, they've done a lot of hard work and have gotten it down below two bytes per base. But that's really important because the cost of hard disks has been coming down by about 20% a year over the past decade. However, the the amount of data being produced, say, in in my area is going up Mm -hmm. uh, nearly exponentially. And those two don't... uh, (laughs) you know, don't work very well. There's still presumably a risk that when you go from the big image files you originally started with down to the smaller amount and then each thing you do further to reduce the amount you have to store, every single time presumably there's risk of something going wrong, something being misinterpreted. How can that be reproduced? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a huge, huge problem. We make the decision where we store the raw data and then we store how we processed it. And luckily that's a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. And then we store the end results. So the bit in the middle 
is going to be essentially deleted. Mm -hmm. um, but we do store how we did it and we try and store things like the track the version numbers of the programs we use, what programs we use, what order we use them in, and a lot of other things. One thing that people get kind of confused about is they go on Amazon or they go into like PC World and they say, oh, I can buy a hard disk. You know, it's only 400 quid for this massive hard disk. Sure, storage is really, really, really cheap. What's the problem? But unfortunately, you end up very quickly with like a pile of portable hard drives on your desk and that doesn't scale very well. And also they're a bit slow. And then if you need to share data with people, that's, you know, a bit of a problem. And it's not reproducible either. So what do you do about it then? Well, I mean, there's different extremes. When you're kind of doing your processing, you could go for like the gold-plated one, which would set you back about a grand per terabyte, you know, which is pretty pricey. Mm -hmm. But then for that, you get like, in case an airplane crashes into your data center, you're fine, you know, mm -hmm. that level of resilience. Or, you know, you can lose half the hard disks in a rack or you might maybe accidentally delete your files and you can get them back, you know. So there's lots of different levels and that, that's kind of the expensive one. But then you can have a cheap and cheerful uh, solution where it's just a load of hard disks and you can get stuff in and out pretty quick. Mm -hmm. um, of course, speed is a problem. I know some very wealthy uh, institutes around the world have made mistakes but they haven't put in these proper systems and they found that actually it's quicker for someone to copy something onto a a hard drive and walk across their campus to plug it in somewhere else because they've forgotten about the bits in the middle. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of cloud solutions out there as well, which people are turning to a lot more. Like Amazon have a S3 and it can set you back a bit because even if you do nothing with the data, you have to rent space. And then when you start moving the data around and doing stuff with it, it costs you money. Mm -hmm. But then you don't have to pay for buildings and people and electricity. And they do have an option called Lease here, which is where you put stuff into cold storage if you don't really need it, like archiving. Mm -hmm. I presume you have something similar in librarianship with books. If you don't really need a book, what oh, yeah, happens? Of course. Well, so we recently in Cambridge built an off-site library storage facility because as a legal deposit library, we're entitled to get a copy of everything published in the UK and Ireland. We don't actually get every single copy. We could ask for it, though, if we haven't received it. And clearly that builds up fast, especially with how quickly published things are getting published these days. Mm -hmm. But let's go back a second to metadata. And I find the first place everyone starts when it comes to metadata is just a spreadsheet. And actually, to be honest, that's the one to beat. So many people try and reinvent the spreadsheet and do it badly, but it works really, really well. Even with enormous lists of files or whatever you might be using it for. You can scale it to tens of thousands. I, I have seen spreadsheets, you know, with nearly 100,000 rows. Really? Yeah, it does Because it seems to crash my computer when you get over a few thousand. <laughs> you need a better computer. <laughs> okay, fair enough. My, no, my role doesn't require a better computer. If it's just you, you know, you, you can get by if you've... If you have a reasonably sized project, you know, a few hundred or whatever, you can get by with a spreadsheet and... To be honest, I wouldn't go doing anything more fancy than that because people do also then go down the other extreme, which is we have to build this, you know, beautiful solution and have 10 developers working on something bespoke just for this. When really you don't. But it's all sounding enormous. How can, like, who would have the resources to reproduce this anyway? Luckily, you can reproduce what other people have made easily reproducible. And it's just a matter of essentially doing a lit review, looking around the world and seeing who else has solved this problem and can we actually just collaborate with them or mm -hmm. perhaps buy a commercial solution. We don't necessarily need to reinvent the wheel ourselves. 
So, I've read a paper. It makes these claims. I can see what their method is. They've shared some data on some repository like Zenodo or something. But that's not the raw data, clearly, because that's far too much. Um, but it's, it's some of the process data at some point along this process that you've described. And they've also shared their code that they've used. That's all great. That's all fantastic. But if I wanted to check what I was saying earlier on about there being the risk of problems creeping in at the earlier stage, the stage before the stuff you've shared, I'm not going to have the resources to do that unless I'm basically working in your institution or one of a handful of others. So how reproducible is it actually? Okay, so there is a bit of realism in there. Yes. However, it is the academic or the original researcher's responsibility to make sure that their work can be reproduced from a reasonable point Mm -hmm. and a point which is agreed by the community as being a reasonable starting point. Right. And it's up to them then to provide the tools and resources to make that happen. Not really the person trying to reproduce it. They shouldn't have to do a vast quantity of work. So in my field, it's generally accepted that you start from base called files mm-hmm. for, say, short read data. And that's what the public archives all accept. And that's it's grown up to, to be that that is what you start from. And that's because the essentially the base calling is quite well trusted and quite mm-hmm. well established for some of the newer technologies that's not the case so for third generation sequencing technologies it's quite new and every version of a base caller which takes a raw signal and turns it into a nucleotide can give you slightly different results so people still retain the original uh, raw signals okay it's about trust and i think it's about technology settling down we can actually get quite far with that Okay, so I'm going to stop distracting you with all the all the risks that you're... I'm probably just going to give you a sleepless night with all these risks that I've raised. Thanks. <laughs> with all this data, what do you do then? What's the next thing that happens? Okay, so we use a system called Galaxy, and that is basically an open source system where you can take bioinformatics tools, link them together, and then produce a result. And then you can share these workflows, these pipelines and anyone in the world can use them and it's really nice you've got a point and click website so pretty much anyone can use it and it's fantastic but there are other people who use pipeline software like nextflow and snakemake and actually there's, there's loads of them there's this uh, community called the cwl common workflow language where they're trying to make a, a nice standardized way of describing all of these different workflows because there's so many of them have popped up but basically, it's just simply, here's some data, do some processing with these tools, get something out. And that is really, really important for my fields. And the huge advantage, <clears throat> of course, if you've got lots of people using the same pipelines, then you know at least that piece, if it's being applied correctly, is going to be consistent. Yes, and within that, you need to make sure the software you're running is correct. Of course, software can have different versions and conda has been absolutely invaluable over the last few years and that's where someone has gone away and taken a piece of bioinformatics software and then wrapped it up to make it trivial to install you literally just type conda install blah mm-hmm. and then it works whereas like i remember for years you know I, I was installing software and trying to figure out you know the readme might say on line 57 you have to change 
this to point to this directory mm. and you know be very fiddly and it would take you maybe a day or two or in some cases even weeks to install one piece of software mm-hmm. because they're so fiddly and people hadn't gone the extra mile to make it easy to install yeah. whereas now conda if one person gets it working then you know that can be shared with the community but it goes one step further anytime you make a conda recipe it's also available as a container do you know what a container is i'm guessing it's something that would basically give you some of the environment that it will be running within as well as well done it's where we've had conversations about these things in the past <laughs> so you can have a virtual machine which is like a totally walled off uh, sandbox and that runs like a, a complete operating system inside something that's totally protected a container is something that's a little bit lighter and it's lightweight it's not as highly secure but it's really fast mm-hmm. and essentially you can have one piece of software in each container and you can have totally self-contained which is really really cool from a computer science point of view and luckily all of these pipeline uh, systems support this kind of way of working where you can have these tools that are totally self-contained and you can run your software uh, through them Mm -hmm. it's really nice you know it's going to work and then it's reproducible and presumably reproducible by people that don't have the same levels of programming skills. Oh, absolutely. Like you can drop a container into like a OS X or into your Linux machine, whatever, you know, and you know it's going to work. I can imagine that there are huge advantages then for in, in a field like bioinformatics, where presumably lots of people will have come from a biology background and will probably have a bit of programming, but maybe not a huge amount. So to have computer scientists in roles like yours developing these packages and making it as easy as possible to use in a reproducible way must make it much easier for them to really focus on the biology, looking at what's coming out the other end and finding new things from that. Absolutely. I mean, biologists have gone very rapidly from a world where they wouldn't really have computers. You know, a computer might be just running an instrument in a lab to a world where computers are just a huge integral part of everything they do and more and more biologists are coming over to the dark side and learning computers and they're learning about mathematics and R Mm -hmm. and it's become an essential thing for their fields it's just great to see Mm -hmm. I think there there is some biologists where they just want you know the magic button to click Mm -hmm. and you can provide that so we have a system called irida which tracks metadata and raw sequence data Mm -hmm. and you know it does have a few standard methods and you click the magic button and then the biologist gets the results but actually you know really what you need to to do more bespoke stuff is to go to something like galaxy where you can fiddle with parameters and you can say well actually for my experiment i want to do things slightly differently and that's where you need just that little bit extra knowledge. And then, of course, you have computer scientists who, you know, can go all out and just write scripts and, <laughs> and that kind of jazz. Which I suppose brings me on to the next thing is how do you make your software reproducible? How do you make your software reproducible, Andrew? Well, <laughs> step one is to actually make the software available. I, I, know, I know that's, that's that seems, shocking. That seems a bit 101, really. Well, yeah. Is that not standard? I know GitHub's no. been around for decades. Uh, it's not standard, unfortunately, no. Wow, why when it's so easy? Isn't it easy? It seems easy. It is, but there's a barrier. And uh, like my original uh, degree was software engineering, so I'm kind of used to the idea of software being um, written in a particular way. And But unfortunately, a lot of people, they haven't had formal training and they picked it up as they went along. 
and they don't realize that it does take a lot of extra work to make some software work on other people's machines you know mm-hmm. it's quite easy to make it work in your machine but you know to make it work more broadly can be quite difficult and time yeah. consuming and i know you get a lot of queries <clears throat> with anything you've ever worked on really from people that are in different contexts trying to run the same thing it is a bit of a curse you know the more people you get using a software which is great mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately it means the more people who encounter errors and mm-hmm. you know provide feedback on this doesn't work or possibly don't understand mm-hmm. how, how it works just uh, pe- think about your impact story focus on the impact <laughs> absolutely yeah but anyway step one is make sure people can actually get your software and then step two ideally it's open source you know that's what most of my software is and uh, you know you've popped on github or gitlab or bitbucket or wherever you know you've made it open so that other people can take it away enhance it or even just run it in themselves but github is really important for me certainly because it can show step by step how the software is created how it's gone along over time and then you can have different versions of the software and you can also get feedback from people you know if they have problems or they identify bugs they can put it in or mm-hmm. if they have enhancements which occasionally happens mm-hmm. and thank you to anyone who's ever sent me an enhancement uh, that saves me a lot of work usually i much prefer enhancements than bug reports Um, but if they provide enhancements they can be integrated very easily into code and then it becomes a community effort not Mm -hmm. just the effort of one person who's maybe employed on a grant and it means that every single research project isn't having to come up with the the code themselves from scratch each time i mean in the past presumably the funding councils would be funding the same work multiple times just because people aren't using what's out there although by the sounds of things that does still happen despite the that people are doing a better job of sharing their code. People love reinventing the wheel. I mean, <laughs> why not? Well, it seems very wasteful, really. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, a lot of people just don't go and Google. Mm-hmm. They don't see what is out there. And then they end up just reinventing the wheel, mm-hmm. often badly, when ideally they should be enhancing another project. But then, of course, if you're doing a master's or a PhD project, you don't necessarily want to enhance someone else's work. You just want to do it yourself and then get a little paper out of it. Mm. It's understandable why people do it, but it is a bit of a waste. But in PhDs, there's a requirement that there's something novel about your research. And if you've just reinvented the wheel, that's not very novel, is it? Well, I mean, definition novelty can be quite... a uh, quite broad okay (laughs) so what happens next you have talked about the data you've talked about the systems that you use the pipelines and so on and you've talked about using things like github and bitbucket to share your code what else is involved you need to run stuff somewhere right Mm -hmm. first of all you should consider that if you have if you employ a postdoc for one hour that and certainly where i work is equivalent of 2440 hours of compute time on amazon wow that's just insane so keep the back of your mind that having someone bash a keyboard is pricey and you really want to minimize that so you want automated systems so the way we do that you know well certainly if we're doing large-scale compute is actually either on a cluster or on an open stack environment on a cloud so if you think of a traditional you know heavy duty facility for for doing analysis you think oh i'll have a cluster and that's just banks of computers you know flashing lights well, unfortunately, that's old school. It's gone by the wayside and it's, uh, yeah, it's gone out of fashion. It's it's what I came to and even even the software people use to run stuff on it, you know, to distribute their work is, you know, 
donkeys years out of date and companies aren't investing in those scheduling things mm-hmm. i should say i did my phd in this kind of scheduling work on these kind of systems it's a uh, it's had its day <laughs> in the 1970s so people moved on to the cloud and this is something i'm really passionate about so i work a lot on mrc climb mm-hmm. which is an open stack system open stack is like a private cloud okay and facebook actually were very good and a lot of commercial companies came together and said well you know on one hand you've got amazon web services with their basic biggest cloud system in the world but that's their proprietary thing you can pay for time to rent it but actually you can't get access to the underlying stuff Mm -hmm. and how it works so a lot of commercial companies and uh, academic institutions came together and said okay well let's work on one big system ourselves and that's open stack and so everyone contributes to this and so you can run your own little private clouds or you can rent time on a, a public open stack system. But it means that everyone is uh, contributing in the same way as Linux to some open system. So that's making collaboration far easier. It is, yeah. We have this project MRC Climb, which is over four different universities where they have hardware in different universities in microbial genomics. You can get access to that for free mm-hmm. and do some analysis and processing on it. it. It's absolutely fantastic. And Quadrum hopes to be able to join into that. We're getting a system paper for B- by BBSRC and we hope to link that in as well. So we can all just share um, how things work and have the same setup you know we're not reinventing the wheel it's literally just kind of copy paste bang there you go it's probably worth saying in case anybody's listening to this that isn't from the uk that the mrc and bbsrc are both funding councils here oh sorry they're both part of ukri which is the overarching funding council for virtually all research in the uk so a lot of people actually to reproduce work uh, do it on amazon Mm-hmm. or on Google Cloud or on Microsoft's Azure service. And those are really good platforms. You know, you can just, if you have a little bit of money, get your credit card out, you can immediately then go and do some computing. You don't have to wait six months to buy some kit and get it installed and have someone configure it, mm-hmm. which is quite good. Right now I can go and do some work. And this is what Netflix runs on. Netflix runs on uh, Amazon, which most people think of as like this parcel service, but actually in the computing world, it is like the big elephant in the room you know of uh of web computing and of storage you, if you want to just get a few petabytes of storage not a problem just get your credit card out and you can have it right now so not only do they control all of our shopping they also control all of the research well not all of the research it was really clever actually because they had spare capacity you know they had built up this big system for selling books and then they had a bit of spare capacity and they've used it to, they rented it out. And then suddenly that's, you know, become a huge system and they're running vast quantities of the internet. But anyway, in terms of uh, doing analysis, there is other ways you can do analysis. GPUs is a huge one at the moment. You know what GPU is? I used to, I'm sure. So it's basically a graphics card. So yeah. a lot of people doing computer gaming uh, would have them in their computers, mm-hmm. uh, like dedicated ones. And so what it does is, essentially, if you want to run the same computation on lots of different data at the same time, it's really, really cool. And it can do it in one step. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a CPU, CPUs are much more versatile. Yeah. And they can run lots and lots of different types of computation on different types of data at the same time so mm-hmm. they, you know it's kind of horse courses okay gpus are really good at doing one thing lots of times and so for bitcoin mining is a huge uh, thing for them now at the moment 
where they can run the same kind of calculations and and whatnot on to generate new bitcoins mm-hmm. and that's actually led to a shortage of uh, gpus <laughs> worldwide which is kind of insane as a as the price of bitcoin went up obviously as it went they down they were easy to produce more yeah uh-huh. um so but we use them in uh, in our field certainly because they can say if you're base calling data you can uh, process a lot of signals very very quickly of course the problem with reproducibility is that gpus are changing quite rapidly and software that's compiled for one gpu can't be used uh, with another one so it's a bit of a gray area and Mm -hmm. it's hard because then people have to purchase specialized hardware so it is a bit of a downside but actually if you go to another extreme which is fpga boards which are heavily pushed at conferences, that's another order of magnitude more difficult. What's an FPGA board? That's not one that I've come across. Oh, they're awesome, but then they're not. Okay. So you can do things really, really quick. And essentially what they do is they hardwire, or think of it as hardwiring a circuit on a physical circuit board to do just your problem, mm-hmm. which sounds really good. This also because, sounds very restrictive. Yeah, so what they do is they... They take standard algorithms, they re-implement them for their board, and then they optimize them to run really, really fast, Mm -hmm. which sounds good. But then it means that you don't get any of the updates to these algorithms, and that happens all the time. And then you have to buy this really expensive board, and then you have to keep paying the money. And then most people don't have them. They're very rare, actually. But if you go to a conference, you know, you'll see them advertised all the time. They're really Mm -hmm. pushing them. So if you were doing something very large scale and it was, it sounds like something that you would need to be really thinking through. How long am I going to be needing to do this one little thing? Can you change what it's for? I mean, it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't be efficient to have it set up one way and then change something else and change back again. Yeah. No. But can you change it if there was an evolution? Can you have it set up one way, run it lots? change it a bit you can change it but ideally what you do is say say your project was you had lots of human genome data Mm -hmm. and you wanted to map some reads just to the human data and you're you know you're doing the same thing over and over and over again for huge amounts of data and huge volumes that's an ideal use case Mm -hmm. but if you want to chop and change and one day you want to do something and then the other day you want to do something else or you know even within the same few minutes that becomes a lot more difficult you'd have to use a different solution presumably well this is where cpus come in and they're much more flexible Mm -hmm. and that's that's why they're still dominant even though these boards can be like 200 times faster Mm -hmm. it it just doesn't make sense in in every case so they haven't taken off and yeah i i wouldn't really recommend it for reproducibility purposes so anyway moving on a major part of reproducibility is just making sure your data is actually publicly available. Of course, if people can't get the data, then they can't do any work. So I know in, in biology, it goes back to in the early days, it's like, oh, you must have your strains available. And if someone, you know, contacts you, you have to post them mm-hmm. a vial of your strain, you know, which makes sense. Okay, it, it's a bit more advanced than that because yeah. you do have these repositories in national uh, collections. Okay. So in the uh, UK, it's the NCTC, which is the National Collection of Tissue Cultures, I think. Mm-hmm. And then the US has one as well. And so if you're publishing a paper on something, you would have to deposit 
in multiple uh, repositories mm -hmm. and then they will provide them or sell them um, so you can get if someone's making a claim about a particular bacteria you can actually get it and then go and use it biologically in the lab. It's really interesting listening to you talk because actually you're using a lot of the same language that we use in librarianship. You've talked about controlled vocabularies, you've talked about metadata, you've talked about standards, you've talked about repositories. These are all the things we do. We're just applying it in a different context. You know, we're doing it with papers or we're doing it with books or online resources but what we're actually doing is not that dissimilar but it's proving again that actually the distance from librarian to information technology computer scientist it's not actually that far it's really it really is a spectrum with very very similar responsibilities just being applied differently absolutely yes there's so much overlap uh, between our areas and i suppose it does highlight something we've done previously or talked about previously which was that we really do need librarians and information professionals integrated into our research groups and this would allow us to actually go and reproduce our science and reproduce our experiments and our work sounds like something we need to continue but maybe another day that's probably enough for tonight all right thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again soon thank you for listening to research pages please rate and subscribe to us on itunes spotify or whatever platform you use the views expressed in this podcast are our own opinions and do not represent the views of the University of Cambridge or the Quadrum Institute.